If, uh, if you have your Bibles and, and if you'd like to turn in them with me, uh, please do so by turning to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be picking up at verse 7, reading down through verse 11, looking at uh, the parable of the wedding feast as a part of, uh, excuse me, our exploration of the parables of Jesus over this summer. And so this morning, we begin our reading verse 7. I'll read down through verse 11. Please uh, follow along with me in the reading of God's word. And he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is the word of our God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching, and of course, by his spirit, the hearing of his word. So I came across a story in the news just a couple of days ago. Um, maybe some of you saw this. Uh, it was about a, a man that was flying uh, out of Fort Lauderdale Airport, and uh, he was flying on Southwest Airlines. And um, this became a national story because he posted it on Twitter, and then it became viral, and then the news media picked it up, all the way to the point that, that Southwest Airlines actually responded to the man's tweet. But he tweeted about what he considered to be a um, pre boarding scam, right? Pre-boarding scam, right? And what he meant by that was there's a, a scam or working the system to get on the, on the plane. And here's what he, he witnessed and he posted. He said what he saw were 20 people getting wheelchair assistance. 20 people, right? And he believed it was a scam because after the plane landed, and I guess he had enough sort of time to do this, and wherever he was sitting, he could do this, three people needed a wheelchair to get off the plane, right? 20 to get on, three to get off. And so he posted that it was a a scam, right? Which it probably was, probably was. Now, why in the world would anybody do that, right? have the nerve to do something like that. Well, I mean, if you've flown recently, by the way, if there are any pilots, any airline officials in here, nothing negative to you, love you personally. Flying today is kind of tough. I mean, it it is. It's not the funnest thing in the world anymore. I mean, we just went up to General Assembly and literally the day of, they put us on another plane, didn't even tell us about it. I mean, another plane at another time, right? So it can be kind of hard right now, right? And so if you are traveling, unless you can fly first class, uh, unless you have sort of special arrangements with your airline that you can get on early or whatever, when they make this statement, make sure you look at your group number and you look down, there's usually something very disheartening about that, right? You see seven or eight or nine, and you see like there are hundreds of people there, and that airplane looks really, really small. And so you begin to figure, I'm not going to get my, my bag in the overhead thing and all that kind of stuff, Right? And so you think of those 20 people, and like, you know what they were doing. They were making sure they got on the plane early. 
And here's the part of it that is so interesting. They were doing it because they really weren't thinking about anybody else but themselves. That was all that mattered, themselves. And they would work the system, they would scam, they would do whatever. It didn't matter. Because what they were going to do is they were going to get on that plane first. This, this speaks to a reality that I think we deal with in our own lives. I think we deal with it because of sin. I think we see it in the world all the time. It is, it's this notion of suppressing yourself forward. That it's all about you. It's all about you getting. It's all about you being recognized. It's all about you being exalted. This week I read a, an article, actually it's maybe third or second or third time I've read this article. I encourage you to read it if you haven't. It's an essay by, by C.S. Lewis, one of his more memorable ones, called The Inner Ring. Any of you ever read that? It's really excellent. And what, what C.S. Lewis does in The Inner Ring is he, he speaks to this sort of like desire in us to be in what he describes as the inner ring. And the inner ring is that, that place of significance, that place of importance, right? That place of recognition. It's, it's sort of like this, this thing that we, we all, from time we're children, that you, you got to be among the cool kids or the popular kids or the best in sports or you got to be the top in the social club or whatever. You got to have connections to political power, whatever those things are. It's like that inner ring and being driven by it. Now, Lewis in the essay does something interesting because he doesn't talk about how this, the, the fact that some people have gifts and maybe more gifts than others, or some people have abilities and maybe more, gift, more abilities than others, or that there are positions of power and influence. He doesn't push against that. What he's pushing against is our desire and what we will do to get in the inner ring. That we will do almost anything to get in. And that we will compromise things that we know are right because we want to get in. And it's that sense of being driven to importance and driven to acceptance and driven to recognition, right? What the Bible reminds us of is that, that it all comes from a very dangerous place. And it all comes from really what many have described as the first son, it comes from pride. It comes from pride. And as Greg read earlier in the service from James chapter 4, remember what James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think in many ways, that's what, what Jesus is, is dealing with in this parable, the parable of the wedding feast. Now, what we're going to do today as we look at the parables, I'm going to structure it in kind of a very simplistic way, as opposed to what I usually do is I'll draw points out and I'll tell you what the multiple points are. I think this parable really is sort of one point. And, and because of that, here's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at the parable itself. Right? And then the second thing is we're going to look at the point that comes out of the parable. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the parable and what Jesus is actually doing with it. And then secondly, I want to draw out what I think the point is that he's making, which in on the one hand, I think is somewhat obvious, but I think we need to go a little bit deeper, a little bit more internal as we hear what he's talking about. So first of all, the parable. And so the parable has a setting. This is something I've said to you in each of these parables we've looked at. It's important to see the setting in order to interpret the parable correctly. 
And we see the immediate setting of the parable in verse 7. He says, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them. So note, he's, he's telling the parable to a specific group. And what he says here in verse 1, I mean verse 7, I'm sorry, near the first part of verse, verse 7, is he's telling it to those who were invited. Those who were invited. Now invited to what? What is this invitation? What's it about? Where were, where were they invited? Well, we see the answer to that in the larger setting, which is actually from verse 1 through verse 6, which we'll look at all of that in a moment. But I do want you to kind of bounce back. We haven't read this yet to verse 1 and just look at the first part of it. Because in the first part, it says this. The one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So that helps you to kind of get a sense of the setting, right? And so what was this? So it was a, it was a, it was a dinner party, right? And it was a dinner party given by an important religious figure, a, ru- a ruler of the Pharisees. And he invited other, the text in context communicates this a little bit more clearly, we'll see in a moment. He invited other Pharisees. He invited other uh, religious leaders. He invited, it says, lawyers. And if you were here for earlier sermon, you may remember when I talk about, when the, when the parables talk about lawyers, what they're talking about are experts in Old Testament law. So this was a room full of incredibly religious, incredibly knowledgeable people that knew the word, okay? And Jesus was invited to have dinner with him. Now, before we press on further to look at what all transpires in this, I just want to kind of pause for a second and just say, I I think it's worthy of noting that Jesus actually does this. He has dinner with him. Because it reminds us of something that is very true about Jesus that I think should be reflected in us, that we want anybody and everybody to hear the gospel. It doesn't matter who they are. And if you think about Jesus for a moment, think of his interactions with everybody that would have been unexpected in the first century world. Jesus, he hung out with the rich and the poor. He hung out with tax collectors and and sinners. He pursued and healed the the, the most diseased of people. All of those, those, those folks that the religious leaders would have said, this is a problem. Jesus moved towards them, but he also moved towards the religious. He didn't put up a wall against them. And he knew they were his main antagonists. He knew they were the people most out to get him. And yet he moves towards them. Now, back up to the parable. So all these people are invited. Jesus is invited. And then it says, okay, to those who are invited, he tells this parable. Verse 7, last part, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So the parable is specifically told because of the way the religious leaders are jockeying for positions of honor. So what, what does this mean? Well, in, in the ancient Jewish world, I mean, it would have been sort of couches that would have been down. They didn't have tables and chairs, you were said. It was couches laid out, and then typically they'd be shaped like a, a uke or kind of like that. And what would happen is you would have the, the, the person of, of most sort of honor, the, the person of, of the greatest sort of social standing would be near the middle and you would move out around. And the ancient world, not dissimilar from our own, this would have been true in the ancient Jewish world, it would have been true in the ancient Roman, Greco-Roman world, just as it's true in our world, it was a world of status and stratification, that those things matter. 
And therefore, what Jesus is actually witnessing is the religious people of Israel. And what they're doing is they're, they're actually sort of jockeying to position around, most likely, the ruler of the Pharisees. It's his house. He is the ruler. And so they're positioning. Because here's the reality. The closer to importance, the closer to power, the better for you. And so they wanted to be honored. They wanted to be lifted up. And so they all were sort of wrestling to get around. That guy's more important than that guy because look at where he's sitting. That guy's more important than that guy. Well, that guy's not that important at all. He's always down there. That kind of thing was going on. So Jesus, he's watching this. He sees it. And he tells a parable. Now, what's interesting specifically about this, this parable is that this parable, I mean, if you note, all the parables are stories, right? And, and, and it's Jesus sort of telling things that connect into stories that people would have been able to connect to and then, then communicating deeper truths. But, but this parable actually, uh, I, I believe, is a reflection on something the, the Bible almost clearly says in another way. Let me, let me say it another way. There are a lot of scholars who, in looking at this parable, question whether it's even a parable as opposed to being just a, a retelling of a proverb, okay? A retelling of a proverb. Now, it is a parable. The reason it is a parable is because the Bible tells me so, right? It just clearly says it's a parable. Jesus tells a parable. So I, if I stood up here and said it's not a parable, please run me out the door. It's a parable. The Bible says it so, okay? But there is something to be said about this being a retelling of a, of a proverb. Why? Because, in a sense, if this is a retelling of a proverb, I mean, who's in the room? You've got all these Old Testament scholars, all these people who need to know, I mean, the Bible, the wisdom literature, the Old Testament. Point being, they should have known this. They should have known this. Right? Here's the proverb that I think Jesus is touching on. It's Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Different setting, royal setting, but note, listen to what it says. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence, or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Now, this is a royal setting, but what does the proverb basically say? This is a proverbial saying. It's a wisdom saying. It's basically saying, don't push yourself forward. Go low. Don't push yourself forward. Because here's what can happen. You push yourself forward in front of the king. You may not be all of that. And now all of a sudden the king says to you, dude, go low, get back. And now you've got to walk with your head down in front of all these people to go to the low place. All right. Jesus now, looking at the religious leaders, he tells them a parable, very similar, different setting. It's a fat setting of a wedding feast. And so in verses 8 through 10, let's look at it again. It says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast. Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up 
higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, you can, you can visualize this, right? I mean, you see what's happening. I mean, it's a scene of a, a wedding feast. And so say, say, for instance, you come early and say, I mean, like, you think you're all that. You think you're, you know, you're pretty much up there. You come in early and you look and you see right, the way all the couches are laid up. You know where the ruler uh, or the, the head of the feast is going to be. And so you kind of go, that seat's open right beside him. So you just make your way over and you have a seat. Now, what he's dealing with is this, and he's working in the context of a culture where, where honor and shame matter. And, and again, I mean, our, our, our world and our culture is not exactly like the ancient world, and we need to understand that. There are a lot of distinctions and a lot of differences, but that idea of honor and shame, it it's propels a lot of things. This is the reason why honor, shame, the reason why cancel culture can take hold in our society the way it does. Because what does cancel culture basically do? It basically says this. Here's the way it works. Basically it says, if you agree with and say, or even if you don't agree with it, you say it, what the world holds to and believes, then you will be honored. But if you don't, you will be shamed. And a lot of times the way it works is you'll be shamed out of existence. Okay? So take that and put it in this parable. So here's somebody that comes in and he's wanting to honor, but he just pushes himself right up. And then the head of the feast says, listen, there's somebody more important here than you. Now get up. He may not say this, but this will be true. Get up in front of all these people and walk back down there. Right? And the shame, the embarrassment, the humility of it, okay? That's what he's getting at, okay? Lifting yourself up, exalting yourself, and then being humiliated, okay? Now, again, it's the same message as the, the proverb. It's just it's basic on the right, don't push yourself forward, go low, be humble, okay? But here's something that I imagine most of us know that is easier to say than to do. It's easier to say than to do. Because of our own son. And because of the way of this world. This world that we live in says the opposite of what Jesus says. This world that we live in says, push yourself forward. Be recognized. Be the man. Be the woman. Exalt yourself. Otherwise, nobody is going to see you, right? So as I was, I was studying this parable this week, one of my less noteworthy moments in my life, one of the moments I, I don't really like to, like, you know, you got to got things in your life kind of like, I don't want to talk about that with anybody. One came into my mind. I'm going to share it with you. Uh, it's embarrassing to me. But I guess it was long enough ago. <laughs> okay, I can tell you this, right? <laughs> but it shows this struggle. So almost 30 years ago, um, not quite, um, I was maybe 31, 32. And Karen and I were here in Miami. We finished seminary a few years earlier. And um, we were here working in missions. And we were members of, and I was a ruling elder in this church. 
way too young to be a ruler. I don't know what in the world I was thinking about or any of you were thinking about letting me be a really, I mean, I was, I think it was, I graduated from seminary, I was in missions, I was teaching an adult Sunday school class, I had a lot of people in it, and so I was an elder. And there was this time where a group of us, a group of the elders, I don't, I don't remember exactly how many, and I don't remember exactly what the situation was, in terms of the matter. But a group of us ruling elders were designated to investigate a particular concern. And we invited an advisor to come in and to meet with us. And the advisor we brought in, um, some of you may know him. Uh, he's, he's not really, like, he's doing stuff now, but he's not really as prominent as he used to be. But his name is Luter Whitlock. And, and Luter, at the time, was the president of Reformed Theological Seminary and a significant leader in our denomination and an expert in the matter we were addressing. And so we gather together, and Luther's there, and these other ruling elders are there. I, I, I tell you this with all kinds of embarrassment. But here I am, 31, 32 years old, in this room, and I'm like, I, I'm, I decided I'm just going to step in and tell everybody, including Luther, what we are supposed to do before anybody else speaks. And Luther turned and looked at me, and I, I remember where he was postured where I was postured. He turned and looked at me. And he, he said this gently, but, but I, I want you to know something. This, this hurt. It hurt. He turned and looked at me, and he said, Mike, we're not here to hear you speak. We're here to hear me speak. I was so embarrassed, humiliated. I was so ashamed. I don't think I said anything else for the rest of the meeting. Right? Why did I do that? Why did I do that? I'll tell you why. Because I was totally insecure. And I wanted to prove myself and be recognized by those men as smart and knowledgeable and wise. To push myself forward. I wanted Luther to see this young man and go, wow, this is an impressive young man. Not one thing I did was honoring to God. Because here's the thing. It wasn't about God. It was about me. That's what it was about. It was about me. Now, when you think about the parable now, to, to now transition from parable to point, one of the things you have to understand is that Jesus is not telling this parable to simply improve the seating social ethics or etiquette of religious leaders. 
He's telling this parable because he sees that they have a deeper problem, right? So that leads to the point, the real point. And Jesus lays it out. I mean, he says it, but you need to make sure you understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. So he says in verse 11 this, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted, right? He says it, right? So here's, here's the thing. He's, he's basically said, okay, you, you exalt yourself. You, you, you sort of make it all about you. You lift yourself up. Then something's going to happen to you. You are going to be humble. You are going to be brought low. But those who humble themselves, and this, this is one of the places Tim Keller's helped me significantly in understanding this idea of humility. Because a lot of times when we think about humility this way, we think about humility as thinking, thinking sort of less of yourself, but that's not what humility is. As Keller points it out, humility is not really thinking about yourself. It's not really it being about you. And this is part of the reason why we can see people that are either either sort of dealing with an inferiority complex or a superiority complex, and both of them can be arrogant beyond belief because they're only thinking about themselves. And what Jesus is basically saying here, when he says this, those who humble themselves, it's like it's not all about you. And then he says... You'll be exalted. And notice the language here. He says, will be humbled, will be exalted. In, in Greek grammar, that's a, it, it's called a passive voice. And a passive voice is basically this idea of something else acting on the subject, right? That's a passive voice. In this instance, which we have to see, this is one of the things that theologians and scholars will describe as a divine passive or a theological passive. And what they mean by divine or theological passive is this, that the one who is acting on the subject is God. This isn't just about how people are going to respond. It's about how God responds to this. So if you lift yourself up, you make it all about you, you magnify yourself, what he's saying here is God is going to humiliate you. But if you humble yourself, if it's not all about you, if it's not about you seeing the answer to whatever it is in your life as being you, God is going to be there. He's going to lift you up. This is an axiom or truism of the kingdom of God. We see it in, in Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2, right? Where Paul tells us we need to even follow this, model this, where Jesus gives up the glory of heaven and he, he humbles himself and takes on flesh. He continues to humble himself all the way to obedience to dying on the cross for our sin. And God lifts him up to the highest place so that every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see it in the Magnificat. Think about Mary. Remember what Mary says in the Magnificat after conception? She says what? That God looked upon her lowly, humble estate. And over and over again, God humiliates the exalted, and he lifts up the humble. Now, 
Jesus tells this to the religious establishment. And here's the thing. This isn't simply about how they posture themselves before one another in seating at a dinner. This is also about how they are posturing themselves with him. Okay? And that takes us to the larger setting, verses 1 through 6, where it says, One Sabbath, note that, that's important, it's a Sabbath day, okay? When he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Stop there for just a second. So it's on the Sabbath, they're watching him, like their eyes are on him, right? And this is an indication of something. They're, they're watching him because I think what this is all about is, is trying to trap Jesus because this is what they were all about. They had seen Jesus over and over again, heal on the Sabbath, something that they did not believe Jesus was going to do. Now they invite him to dinner on the Sabbath. And now our eyes are all on him because something else is going on. It says, verse 2, and behold, I mean, did this man just like appear out of nowhere? It's drawing attention. And behold, there was a man before them who had dropsy. Now, the text doesn't say this, but don't put it past these dudes. Like, how in the world did a man with dropsy end up in the middle of their house? Did God just miraculously put him? I, I don't think that's what's going on here. If you know anything about the religious establishment, they were always trying to, to make traps and catch Jesus in traps. And so what I think is happening is this. Here's this man. He has dropsy. means all his cavities are filling up with all this water and all this stuff like that. It causes terminal illness because it ends up causing organ failure and all these different kinds of things. This man may not have had any time left to live. And they take this man and they bring him and they stick him in front of Jesus on the Sabbath. Wow, what is Jesus going to do? I wonder. What is he going to do? The end of verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And he took them and he healed them and he, he sent them away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a, a, a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they, they could not reply to these things. So think of the scene here. Here's, here's Jesus invited to a dinner. All the religious establishment is there looking at him. There's a man in their midst that is terminally ill. What is Jesus going to do? And he asked two questions. The first one in verse 3, is it lawful? It's a simple, direct question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Not one of them said anything. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Absolutely. There's room in the laws related to the Sabbath for acts of mercy. Absolutely, right? The law itself is defined by the reality of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The Lord of the Sabbath does what? He heals this man right then and right there on the Sabbath and then he sends him on his way. And then he asks a second question. And it is this question that gets to not only their hypocrisy 
but their self-centered focus. And that's in verse 5. And they don't answer this one either. But here's the question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They don't answer it. But every last one of them in that room would have gone, yeah, I've done that or would do that. What's the difference? What's the difference? I think it is pretty simple. The law, when we get it, it orients us this way and this way. Right? Up and out. Do you know why these men would have pulled out a person or an ox from a well? It wasn't necessarily because that person or that ox was more important than that man with dropsy. It was because that person would have been their son and their ox. Because really what this was all about was them. And this is the issue. If it is all about you, it doesn't really matter how religious you are. If it is all about you, you are most certainly missing God, missing the law, and missing Jesus. What does he say? Humble, everyone who, who exalts himself will be humble, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's look to him and all of our brokenness and fallenness and insecurity and sin and whatever is going on in our lives my brothers and sisters in Christ we cannot fix these things by anything we do nor by any way of the world they can only be fixed by recognizing them and looking to Jesus the very ones that the religious establishment would not see. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for these reminders, Lord, of what and how we know you and only will know you by looking away from ourselves. As we turn now our, our attention and our hearts to your table, we are reminded of this, of what you and you alone have accomplished through your death on Calvary's cross. We thank you, Lord, that you were willing to go to the lowest place, to give up everything, so that we, your people, in you and you alone, could be lifted out of our sin and humiliation and brokenness. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work genuine humility in our hearts and lives, not a pretense of it, but the reality of it, by reminding us how often and in how many ways, Lord, we cling to the value system of a world that is all about pushing self forward. Help us, Lord, 
work in us genuine humility, trusting in you for all that we need. We pray that you would bless this time at the table, that you would use these very common elements for your holy purpose in the life of your people. Grow us together as we come and feed here. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's join uh, together as we come.